This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. It really is an honor to be here, and I was able to sit and listen to presentations yesterday, and I kept thinking to myself, I really don't belong here. I'm very honored, though, that Sam would invite me to come and share what I do in the field of organ donation and how that might pertain to your conversations, your communication with families. Because when it comes right down to it, it's still all about communication. So a little about our philosophy in having conversations with families about organ donation. It's simply this. We help families make their best decision in their worst moment about donation based on their values and their beliefs. Doesn't that sound very familiar to what you're doing with a family? Your family, you're trying to ascertain what that family's values and goals are in, term of, in terms of end-of-life care. We are doing precisely the same with organ donation. What I always say, we're not trying to manufacture something. We're not trying to get a family to say yes. We're simply trying to have a meaningful conversation at a very impossible time with a family. And you are trying to do the very same with your families in critical care. When we are speaking, when we are thinking, we are being very clear in making our points. Families are often hearing, Blah, blah, blah. And the trick is, how do we get beyond that to really communicate with a family? And that's what I'd like to be able to share with you today. On a more serious note, I'd like to take this cartoon and translate it into something that perhaps is a bit more understandable for at least an American audience. This is from a friend of mine, his quote, this is this family's 9-11 they are being terrorized by the events of this day. That really gets us into the mindset of that family and how difficult it is to communicate with these families in such a moment. Two disclosures, I have no financial interest from this presentation. The second disclosure is from Nels Bohr, a Danish physicist who won the Nobel Prize in 1922. I am an expert in the field, as Nels Bohr describes me. I'm an expert as someone who has made every possible mistake in a very narrow field. That's how I come to you today with a lot of years of learning what I did wrong in trying to improve it and make it better for families. A question I often ask when I speak at hospitals about donation is, if we could speak to families a month after the death of their loved one, what percentage of families 30 days after, would say yes to donation. And the answer usually comes back 85, 90%. The truth is, that's not the percentage that is saying yes to donation when we meet them in those situations at the hospital. So what it tells me is that there are circumstances at the hospital that are interfering with families. Our philosophy is if we 
could have spoken to this family three weeks before any tragedy had befallen them, what decision in a clear, cool state would they have made about donation in that moment? That's the same decision we'd like to help them to make in this moment so that three weeks, three months, three years from now, they feel confident of the decision that they made. Isn't that the same that you are trying to do with your families? Whether it's when you're having that discussion about the grave prognosis, end-of-life care, withdrawal of care, whatever it is, declaration of death, those are very high-stakes conversations and very difficult to have and much easier to have outside the moment of the hospital, but that's the only moment we have. Oftentimes, I hear from, I get a little pushback from physicians, and they say, you guys in organ donation make a lot too much of your work. Just go in there and ask the question. It's a yes or a no question. That's all it is. And I push back against that. And I'll often quote this study. This is from the proceeding of the National Academy of Sciences, I think done in 2010. And unbeknownst to eight parole judges in Israel, they studied them very closely. And these judges hear cases that last about six minutes. They have breakfast together, they hear cases, they have a mid-morning snack, they hear more cases, they have lunch, hear more cases, afternoon snack, and then they're done. So parole is only granted in 35% of the cases. So 65% of the time, it is denied. When these judges were studied, you want to see what it looked like? We eat, we feel good, we grant parole. We come up to the mid-morning snack, we're pretty hungry, we're fatigued, and we don't grant parole anymore. We eat again, and we grant parole. These are professionals charged with making decisions about the lives of people. Imagine the families that we are working with at hospitals who are trying to make decisions regarding the care of their loved one with us as a team. Think of how challenged they are going to be in making decisions in understanding information. These are families oftentimes that haven't eaten, they haven't slept, they're really foggy, and yet we are trying to have meaningful conversations beyond blah, 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 so that they can make the best decision on behalf of their loved one. This is not an easy thing to do. So I'm going to introduce you to a couple of people that really have informed our practice over the years. So George Lowenstein, Dan Ariely, they're behavioral economists. Behavioral economists study decision-making and understanding. And they have really informed my practice because they started to speak of something called decision-making in hot emotional states. I'm from Phoenix. It has nothing to do with Phoenix. It has to do where people are in their head or where they are not in their heads. So a quick primer into their work. So a uh, cool state is when everything is going well in your life. Parasympathetic nervous system is nicely in place. 
everything is good, that is not the time that we are meeting families. We are meeting families under the worst of cir circumstances when their sympathetic nervous system has taken over. So we're talking about epinephrine, norepinephrine, and we're also talking about the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal access. So you have the surge of glucocorticoids, Families are off to the races in their heads. This is what they refer to as hot states. These are families mobilized for what? Fight or flight. It is going to be so difficult for families to really be tuning into what you are saying when they are in this fight or flight mindset. And our goal is to break beyond that. So Lowenstein and Ariely, so Ariely is out of Duke University, Lowenstein is out of Carnegie Mellon. And they did their study in many different ways. Lowenstein quotes a study that you might be interested in. It was done by Harvey Max Chorchinoff, and it was done in 1999 in Manitoba. They took 168 terminally ill cancer patients and they asked them the same questions every 12 hours. They all agreed to participate, and the questions had to do with their level of pain, their level of nausea, their level of discomfort. The last question asked was always, what is your will to live? And that varied as much as 30% in a 12-hour time period. People in a hot state, whether it's from pain, or nausea, or whatever it is, will see and understand things very differently and make decisions differently. I oftentimes, in my world, hear faculty and staff say, this family is absolutely crazy. Or this mom is the mayor of clown town. I will hear such disparaging things said about these families, and I know literally these families are out of their mind. Because going to the hospital, they have already worked themselves into a hot state, and being in the hospital and getting this terrible news, seeing their loved one in that bed, they only continue and persist in that hot state. We do two years of continuing care with the families we meet through donation. We just had a ceremony where over 500 people attended, these were donor families. Let me tell you, these families are far different on that day that we just had than they were when I met them at the hospital. There's a huge difference, families in hot states, to when they're in their regular cool states. What to expect from people in hot states, you already know this, and that is problems with thinking, decision-making, problem-solving, concentrating, you see the list. I still in hospitals hear Elizabeth Kubler-Ross resurrected all the time. And I'll hear from hospital staff, this family is in denial right now, or this family is bargaining. So DABDA, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance, is really not the model that Kubler-Ross developed for us. And if we're using that, it really is very unhelpful. We're trying to fit people in categories that really don't work. It's enough to know that these families are literally out of their mind in a hot emotional state, and we need to do things, we need to have interventions that will walk them out of that. This is what I think when I see families. I think families have a musical score going on inside their head, either the theme from Psycho or Jaws. And when they've got that kind of pounding music, and that really is what it feels like, I hear families describe where they are in that moment at the hospital when you are trying to communicate. They are in a deep, dark tunnel. They don't hear. 
It's blah, blah, blah. How do we break beyond that? So the way we used to be able to do that was we used to put people in ice baths. So anyone having a hot psychotic episode, you would put in an ice bath, and it really cooled them off. We did this in the States up to the 1950s, or sometimes we did cold blanket therapy. Uh, we don't do that anymore, so what can we do? The fundamental question, so this presentation is not about the words that you use. This is about the most fundamental concept of anything that has to do with communication, and that is, is it safe? The problem is at hospitals, things don't feel safe to that family when their loved one is in that bed. Our job is to make that family feel safe as they can possibly feel, to mitigate the circumstances, because it is only in times of safety, when people feel safe and secure, that they are open to communication, that connection and trust can be built. So before we ever go into a room with a family, our fundamental quest is, how can I help this family feel safe in a very unsafe situation? So I take you to the blitzkrieg of, that began September 7th, 1940 in London. For 57 straight days, the Luftwaffe dropped bombs on London. Over 20 million civilians died and just about one, one million homes destroyed. In that time period, before the bombs had been dropped, the people of London knew this was coming and they prepared. They got counselors, psychologists, because they thought there was going to be a psychological breakdown. How would the people of London ever endure such devastation? So they were prepared on September 7th when those bombs dropped for the first time and kept going for 57 straight days. So how did the people of London actually do? They carried on pretty normally. So how did they carry on pretty normally with such destruction every day in their lives? The answer is this. What makes people feel safe? And this is very simple. And it is simply when things are predictable, familiar, when people have a sense of control, support systems, and they have a voice. So what the Germans did is every night they dropped the bombs at the same time. So things were predictable. What happened was the people in London went to the bomb shelters every night at the same time. It became a little ritual for them. It was familiar. They would sit in the bomb shelters with the same people. They had a sense of control because they knew if they left their homes at a certain time, they could get to the bomb shelter before the bombs fell. They had their own support system in that moment, and they had a voice. Those are the things that make people feel safe. So think of your hospitals. Think of how do you make things more predictable, more familiar, give families a sense of control. Think of how unpredictable everything is when a family comes into a hospital. And we sometimes, in our work, make things worse. We tell a family we're going to meet them at 10 o'clock. We don't. Some trauma comes up, and we never meet with them. We don't tell them what all the instruments in that room that are meant to help their loved one, we don't describe them. We don't introduce all the new residents or interns or attendings that come in to work with their loved one. We just make this worse. If we do not pay attention in hospitals to these five fundamental things of making things predictable, familiar, one of the things my staff does, once we meet with a family, 
the same person stays with that family the entire time, and that's usually 36 to 40 hours, to make things familiar for that family, to give them a sense of control. One of the important things that we do in organ donation is we not only give information to families, we encourage a dialogue, a real conversation, because in giving them voice, it gives them a sense of safety. We're trying to walk them out of a very unsafe situation to feeling as safe as they can in that particular moment. A word of caution. I see this all the time. The truth is, it's not only families that want to feel safe, it's hospital staff we want to feel safe too. Classic point of how this translates. So we've got a family, large Hispanic family. There are about 100 of them in the waiting room. And they have taken over the waiting room. So what they are trying to do is make things more predictable, more controllable, give them sense, a sense of support. So they brought in their music. They brought in food. Everyone from the community is there. They've taken over the whole waiting room. This is driving the ICU staff crazy. Because what's the ICU staff trying to do at the same time? Make things predictable for themselves? Establish a sense of control? I hear them complaining to one another about the large family that's out there with their food and their music. And this ICU actually calls the security guards and the dogs to come out and disperse this family into the cafeteria. But you see what's happening. Hospital staff wants to feel safe. They want things predictable, familiar, controllable. And so does the family. And if you don't recognize that in the moment, you are going to lose the sense of that. And you're going to make decisions that really are the antithesis of good communication. I introduce you to the important work of Stephen Porges. Stephen Porges has been working for the last 30 years on what he calls the polyvagal theory. I won't do it justice. It is a brilliant book that was published in 2011. It is, it is his life's work. The polyvagal theory is simply this. So usually when people have learned about the sympathetic nervous system, we think of either sympathetic or parasympathetic impaired antagonism. What Stephen Porges is talking about instead is that it is not that. He speaks of the vagus nerve, the unmyelinated vagus nerve, which is our oldest defense mechanism, which goes back to our reptilian days, and that is our freeze, and that is our oldest defense mechanism. Our next is going to be the sympathetic nervous system, and that is fight or flight, and the most developed phylogenetically is going to be what he calls the social engagement system, which is with the myelinated vagus, the 10th cranial nerve, that innervates over 80% of the parasympathetic nervous system. If you can engage that particular circuit, you can actually bring calm to that particular individual or that particular family. I'm just going to read you a quote from Porges. We have to understand that these defensive behaviors are physiological. So these are not psychological constructs. These are physiological events triggered by specific neural circuits. And we need to figure out how to recruit these neural circuits that promote social behavior. So he speaks about how that vagus nerve innervates 80% of the parasympathetic nervous system. It is linked to the cranial nerves of facial expression in vocalization. 
And it also links to respiratory tract, gastrointestinal tract, heart, and abdominal viscera. It is very important because what it allows for is self-soothing, it allows for calm, it allows for social engagement. When people are in a defensive posture, and if you've seen any of the footage of police officers who are in a defensive posture, sometimes they overact, and that is because they're in this second mode of fight or flight mobilization, and they can't get to that social engagement system. So Porges, this entire book is dedicated to, you can see the title of it, Neurophysiological Foundations of Emotion, Attachment, Communication, and Self-Regulation. And his goal is, how do you break beyond those physiolog physiological constraints and engage the circuits that will make a difference in terms of social en engagement? Basic human connection. What he talks about is the way to engage those circuits is the very simple ways that most of us who have done work with families already know, but they work on a neurophysiological level. It's not just nice stuff. It's stuff that really engages people. Eye contact, prosody of the voice, modulating the voice. All of that engages the vagus nerve, eye blinking. The middle ear muscle, when it moves, it actually is a motor act that makes a difference with that vagus nerve reassuring looks, all of that is to bring people to that calmer, more soothed place. Big thing, quiet places without noises. Think of your ICUs, how terrible they are. You may be used to the buzzers and the beepers and all of that going off, but those families are not. And every time those noises start, people are triggered back into a defensive posture. People in a defensive posture, in all the literature out there substantiates this, they cannot engage in a meaningful way as long as they are feeling defensive. The last thing I'll mention is in communication with families, there is no such thing as a throwaway moment. Every time I am about to meet a family, I know their nervous system is detecting safety or threat. So think of the times that you are meeting that family. Before you are meeting them, their nervous system, especially two different parts of the brain, uh, the temporal sulcus and the fusiform gyrus superior, are going to actually detect this is feeling stuff, this is not thinking stuff. They will see that you are either safe or you are unsafe. Walking into that room is going to make a difference into how the communication can proceed. Before it's ever a word, it needs to be a sense of safety. And I'm going to stop there and see if there are questions. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.